So you want to be baptized. That is wonderful. The Apostle Peter said on the day of Pentecost, and we can read this in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, meaning the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is like a three-step program, a three-step process for salvation. Repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. When you repent, what do you repent of? What is repentance? What are you trying to do? What is it you want? Well, you want to be saved. You want to receive Jesus Christ of Nazareth as your personal Savior. You've heard it all of your life. Ninety percent of all that you hear from the mainstream fundamentalist preachers and the Protestant churches is believe on Jesus. Just believe Jesus. Accept the Lord. Receive Jesus. Come to Jesus, etc. Come to the cross, says one of the most famous of America's evangelists. Almost none of them really go into any detail about repentance. And the reason they do not is because they dare not get into some of the scriptures I want to read for you now. They dare not tell their parishioners what is sin and what is it that we're to repent of. What does repentance mean? Sorrowful, sure. Contrite, sure. Brokenhearted, definitely. Chagrined, ashamed. Self-abhorrent, oh yes, all of those things, but about what? Why? Because of what? What have we done? What is it that is so wrong? I remember an ad that came in the Pasadena Star News many years ago where one of the mainstream Protestant fundamentalist churches had an, an ad there with a cross on it, and it said, what is sin? I thought, ah, oh, now this is something. I'm going to find out here what this church says sin is. And they said, sin is, that is the way it has been interpreted to us, something which is displeasing to God. It left me hanging out there in limbo. didn't tell me anything. Some churches say card playing, whiskey drinking, and wild, wild women. Some say dancing and the wrong kind of music. They have all sorts of things that they label as sin, but very few of them, if any, and I'm not really sure that I know of any in all of the years that I've heard from or about or read literature about some of these Protestant mainstream fundamentalist churches, I've never seen a one of them quote 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. I've never seen that. Maybe some of them do, but mostly they don't. Now the decision you're about to embark upon, and I assume that you're watching this because you've already made that decision, and you want to be counseled for baptism. This decision is first and foremost the most private, the most personal decision you will ever make. It is yours and yours alone. It must not be cluttered up with spouse, children, father, mother, loved ones, relatives, or friends. It must not be cluttered up with church membership, organizational considerations, joining or belonging to a church, or anything else. It is far more deeply personal than that. It's a more important decision, believe it or not, than selling a home, getting a job, starting a new career. It's a more important decision even than young parents deciding to have children. It's a more important decision than going off to college. It's a more important decision than someone joining the military. Now, any one of the things that I'm talking about is a major life change, isn't it? It would mean living in a different place, going to a different place to earn a living, and a different kind of a career or a profession. 
If you go to college, you're going to major in something so you can actually decide what will be your life's work. What will you do all the rest of your life if you want to get married and earn a living or if you're a woman and you want to marry a man who is going to provide you with a living? Huge decisions, monumental decisions, decisions that are going to last for literally decades and for the rest of your life. But this is far more important than any of those because this decision you're about to make is a decision which will last for all eternity. It's a decision which can only have two, one of two, ultimate outcomes. One is salvation, everlasting life, everlasting strength, power, youth, ebullience, exuberance, excitement, happiness, joy, fulfillment, contentment, and the other, total destruction. If you fail, and that's why we should look into some of the scriptures about putting our hands to the plow, that is, only you can make that decision. Let's put it this way, and this is the way God's Word certainly shows it to be. God will never cast you off or throw you away. Jesus Christ thanked His Father that He had lost none of those whom His Father had given Him, save the son of perdition. And He prayed for the disciples that their faith would not fail. And if Jesus Christ of Nazareth is sitting at the right hand of the Father on high, which He is right now at this instant, as your high priest and mine, he is there to make intercession for you. He is not going to lose you. He's not going to let go of you. He will always be there to help you. And you've heard the poems and all the statements about the fellow that got to heaven, allegedly the pearly gate story. And he looked along his back road and he saw that there were two sets of tracks and one was Jesus and the other was him, but there were some really rocky, tough places where he wondered why Christ had left him. And he said, there were the footprints there, just one set of tracks. And Jesus allegedly said to him, well, that was when I had to pick you up and carry you. Now, you've probably heard that story and many like it. But in a way, it really illustrates a point of truth. You need to have no fear about what I'm saying, that there are only one of two possible consequences to the decision you're about to make because 99.4400%, that's a figure that somebody once picked out of, a, of a hat somewhere. I think it's a lot higher than that. 99.99% of those who make this decision are going to be in God's kingdom and are going to be saved because you receive salvation. You are a new creature in Christ. You are a new spirit being on the way toward full birth after you arise out of the baptismal font or pool or lake or stream or river and you have hands laid upon you for the receiving of God's Holy Spirit, and at that instant God begets a new creature in Christ which has life, which is living, and its destiny is to continue to live, to be born as a mature spirit being. We'll get into that in the three-part series of instructional video and audio tapes that I'm now producing on repentance and baptism and the receiving of God's Holy Spirit. Now, the other is unthinkable, and it also, and I'll just say this in passing, is one reason why I am personally against the concept of cremation. Cremation is the complete destruction of the human body by fire. And God's method of punishment, the second death, is Gehenna fire, which is absolute destruction of the human flesh and, because God Himself is the only one capable of doing this, the destruction of the spirit. As Jesus said, do not fear man when after he has killed the body, he cannot kill what is called the soul, but the Greek word is suke, and it means the living principle or the life, the innate life, the new creature in Christ, the spirit creature that is inside of all of us. 
that man is not able to kill that by any manner, manner, method or means. Man is in the case of the Holocaust in Germany and is in the case of cremation today, including the Kennedy tragedy that occurred, can completely burn into a small little pile of ashes a human body so that there is virtually nothing left. But man cannot kill the suke or the spirit in man together with God's Holy Spirit or even the spirit in man which has not yet received of God's Holy Spirit, which will live on in the deepest, profoundest sleep until the resurrection. Since God judged Sodom and Gomorrah by eternal fire and burnt them to ashes, and since the judgment of God for the incorrigible is to burn them with ashes, and since the righteous will tread down the wicked like ashes under their feet, as it says in the very last chapter of the Bible in the Old Testament, I do not believe that destroying the human body is according to God's will. I'll just say that in passing. I was able to very gently dissuade my own beloved sister Beverly from choosing that method, and an awful lot of people do it merely because of economic consideration, but some have some other kind of spiritist concepts about spreading their ashes around over a mountain or the ocean or in a river or on a golf course or somewhere, which really is a lot of nonsense and should not be done. All right, back to where we were. Very important. You do not need to discuss in any detail whatsoever with anyone, orally or in writing, any of your personal sins. You are a personal, sovereign individual. You have your own memory, and you can go before your God on your knees, which I'm sure you have and which you should, and you will, and before Jesus Christ as your high priest, and confess everything, every rotten, unthinkable, heinous, evil thing you've ever said, thought, or done. Everything in your past life up to this point. And of course, God knows our thoughts. He knows every hair on our head. He knows every sparrow that falls. So God can look down inside our minds and hearts and back along our back trail in our past lives. And He knows because He and lots of angels were there witnessing it all. And so He knows it all. You can't hold anything back from God, but you hold everything back except the fact, yes, I've repented to man. It's been said time and again, to err is human and to forgive is divine. And by the way, that is the correct pronunciation. Look it up if you would like. Ergonomics, ergo, etc. It is err, not err, as some people say. To err is human. To forgive is divine. You will be forgiven exactly commensurate with the amount of forgiveness you've been willing to give others. Now, there are others against whom you've had all sorts of problems. You've had family problems and falling out with friends. You've had business associate problems. You've been ripped off. You've been stolen from. You've been mistreated. You've been abused. You've been cursed. You've been put upon by other people who have made you very, very angry. As you contemplate baptism, you need to understand some of the scriptures I want to go through with you now that you must also be willing to completely forgive. Now back to the privacy of this and about no need to go into any detail. The reason I'm bringing that up is from over 40 some years of very sometimes painful experience. And I happen to know that some churches, and we all understand about the policy of the Roman Catholic Church and indulgences in a confessional booth. If you were to look into Hafele's church histories, you would find what is the gradual reason for the development of the confessional booth. And I won't elaborate it except to say that eventually they had to make the little lattice work so small that no human hand could pass between. All right, enough of that. 
But there have been cases where human counselors have tried to pull out from people all sorts of horrible details about things in their past which never should be done. You are making a personal, intensely private decision, and you make it before Almighty God and His Son and your Savior and High Priest Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to turn to Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 and read this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It's amazing how much people are subject to every kind of a cult and every kind of a superstition and religion because of their fear of death and the unknowing about death. And what is death? What happens when we die? For verily he, Christ, took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. You do not have an earthly priest. I'm not a priest. The one who might assist you and come to you and discuss with you your need for baptism. We might take a, a little uh, view of what happened when Philip was sent by God to visit with the Ethiopian eunuch. And how the Ethiopian eunuch merely wanted more understanding about a passage in Isaiah. And of whom was this passage speaking? And when Philip expounded and explained to him about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, the eunuch said, what hinders me to be baptized? And Philip said, nothing. There's the water. Let's go get it done. There was no interrogation. There was no question from Philip whatsoever about the eunuch's past life. The eunuch wanted to be baptized. He needed to be baptized. He said, can I be baptized? Philip said, you sure can. End of story. Now, it says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted, that is to aid or to help, to relieve, because he understands and he can turn to his father and say, I understand that temptation. I understand that problem. I understand that agony of spirit that person is going through. I understand the torment. I understand the temptation that is there. So, Father, as this person comes, and repents on his or her knees in tears before you. Please forgive them because I understand the way they feel. You have only one priest. That is your high priest, Jesus Christ, in heaven, and you can go directly to him. I want you to imagine like a beautiful stainless steel cylinder, and it is capped at one end and open at the other, and you relieve the cap, and that is your direct connection to Jesus Christ in heaven above, like the voice tube they used to have on ships of war back during World War I. When you talk into it, that is, when you get on your knees and you say, Our Father which art in heaven, there are no bifurcations, there are no Y intersections, there are no joints, there isn't anybody else, you don't have to share it, it's not a party line, it's absolutely private, and you don't have to ask my permission, or the permission of your local pastor, or an area coordinator, or a deacon, or a counselor, someone authorized to conduct baptisms, or any other human being. It is completely, intensely personal and private between you and Almighty God, whom you address as your Father in heaven, and Jesus Christ is listening, and He sits there as your high priest and turns to your Father in heaven and says, I understand, please forgive them. Personal and private. 
Now, to err is human, yes, to forgive divine. Let me tell you this, men will sometimes forgive. That is, men will sometimes say they forgive. We're accustomed to this in marriages and in personal and social relationships. People come to know other people's foibles, faults, sins, and mistakes. And they say, well, that's all right, uh, I, I forgive you. But look out, because 10 years may go by, or 15 or 20. And when tempers get out of control, sometimes those old, buried, horrible, rotten sins will be dragged right out of the casket, and there they are to be sorted through because someone will use them against you years later. For example, Ted Kennedy will never be allowed to forget Chappaquiddick. The media won't let him. And sure enough, even in the aftermath of the recent tragedy, there were pictures of that bridge of the people standing there reminding us of Teddy Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. So remember, men will sometimes forgive and they will never forget. But God will forgive and will forget. And His forgetfulness is perfect. If you haven't read Buried Sins and Spiritual Grave Robbers, I have a booklet by that title. It was one of the very first booklets that I published under the new beginning of the Intercontinental Church of God, and I had a very important reason for publishing that booklet. It is absolutely, authentically accurate according to every nuance of Scripture. It is right out of the Bible and the Word of God, and it shows what is one of the most heinous sins of all. And that is for a man or woman or anyone to say, yes, I forgive, and then later on to get that spiritual spade and dig up that rotting old corpse when God has forgiven it, when God has obliterated it, when God has erased it from his mind, and then to deal in spiritual graves robbing. And any or every time that we throw up a forgiven sin to someone else, we are guilty of that terrible crime and sin, and guess what happens then? All of our own sins are going to be heaped right back on us by God the Father because He won't tolerate that kind of activity. I know some people that have problems in that direction that are probably walking around blissfully ignorant of the fact that their own sins are heaped upon them like a pile of dung, and they don't even know it because they revel in and they wallow in the knowledge of the sins of others who have long since been forgiven. Put that down and don't ever forget it. Now, Ezekiel 18, 20 and 22. The soul that sinneth, and that is the Hebrew word, which is not a spiritual conscious being that lives inside of a body, but it is a Hebrew word, ruach, that actually means the living life principle or the individual, the person. The person that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither the father bear the iniquity of the son. See the intensely personal element here? The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn from all of his sins that he has committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All of his transgressions that he has committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he has done, he shall live. God says they will never be mentioned to him. Psalm 103, verses 2, 3, and 4. Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, every one of them, 
large and small, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. And Psalm 103, 8 to 13, the eternal is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins. If He had, we'd all be dead, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And that, of course, is metaphorical, because the east never meets the west. You can keep going east around and around and around the world a thousand times, can't you? Or west a thousand times. The two do not meet. So it means into absolute infinity, into the vastness of the universe. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the eternal pitieth them that fear him. Now another question. You want to be forgiven. Do you know what sin is? 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. Many people shy away from that, and the one big problem that a lot of people have is that of the Sabbath, and you need to go through that and to understand it, that God does not categorize sin, that the fourth commandment is on an equal par with every other of the commandments, whether the fifth or the sixth or seventh or tenth, that they are all on the same level, and that breaking God's Sabbath day, working on the Sabbath, is tantamount to murder, and you must never do it again. Do not be baptized. Do not make that step unless you are willing to obey God's commandments, and that means to observe the seventh-day Sabbath from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset every single week without fail for the rest of your natural human physical life. You can't have someone saying, well, I was baptized last year, and I'm trying, uh, I, I'm working, I'm asking my boss, but he's kind of hard-headed, and he doesn't see it my way, and I can't get time off yet on the Sabbath. That's like saying, well, I'm a member of the mafia, and I'm a hitman, and uh, they only give me one contract a month anymore, so I've only got to kill seven more people before they're going to let me get out of that job. Do you get the point? From God's point of view, the breaking of the Sabbath is identical to murder. You wouldn't have someone, you wouldn't baptize someone, and I certainly wouldn't, that said, well, I'm a member of the mafia, I'm a hitman, and I've only got about five more contracts to fulfill, so I'll go ahead and get baptized this year before the feast, and then I'll kill somebody in the spring, somebody in summer, and two or three more before the feast next year, and then by that time I won't have to kill anybody anymore. Wouldn't that be stupid? It's exactly the way God looks at it. The Sabbath day must be kept. When you repent of sin, you repent of breaking the Ten Commandments of God. We have a literature on that. We could talk about that for hours. That is not the purpose of this. My purpose is to explain, to expound repentance. When the Apostle Peter said, Repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit, it is a three-step program toward salvation. And repentance must be real. It must be felt. It must be an emotional breakup of the deepest, innermost psyche. It must be contrition. It must be deep sorrow, and it must not be the sorrow of this world. It is not like the sorrow of the thief who is caught. The bank robber who is shot in the leg goes to the hospital and does 20 years, and he's really sorry that he got caught, but he's not deeply broken up and sorrowful over the fact that he tried to take other people's money. There's a very great difference between someone who is temporarily sorrowful because they got caught 
in something. And we're all sorrowful when we get caught and others know about hor horrible things that we have done, sure. But we've got to be repentant toward God. As David prayed in Psalm 51, against thee, thee only have I sinned. And that was the repentance following that affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. All sin is against God. That doesn't mean we cannot commit sins which affect very deeply our loved ones and other people because we can, murder being the most uh, heinous example of that. But the sin itself broke God's law as well as taking a human life. There are the consequences in society for sin and societal laws which can be imposed upon us, and there are the consequences of God imposing upon us eternal destruction. The wages of sin is death, not the first death. It's given to all men to die once. Not the first death, no matter what kind of a death it is. Drowning, freezing to death, being shot in a robbery attempt, even being burnt, trapped in a blazing automobile, and suffering the horrors of being burnt to death. That still, no matter the method, whether dying peacefully in one's sleep under sedation in a hospital at age 94, or dying in a burning automobile at age 17, it is not the wages of sin. It may be the wages of sin that is imposed by the physical laws of science. It might be the wages of sin, like very rarely does anybody get an injection or go to the electric chair anymore, but it might be the wages of sin imposed by the state, but it's given to all men to die once, no matter that method of death. But after this, the judgment, says the Word of God. When it says in the latter part of the 20th chapter of Revelation that death and the grave were cast into Gehenna, it says this is the second death. And Luke 16, in the picture of the rich man who sees this wall of flaming approaching, is the biblical parable that explains about Gehenna fire, and that is destruction by fire, and it is the second death of the incorrigible. Now, so you want to be forgiven. Have you forgiven? Luke 7, 36 to 50, I want you to read that. One of the Pharisees desired that Jesus would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And there was a woman in the city which was a sinner. Apparently she was a prostitute. When she knew Jesus was there eating, she went into the Pharisee's house, and she brought with her an alabaster box of ointment. And she stood at his feet behind him, began to weep. She's crying, the tears are streaming down her face. And she knelt and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what kind of a woman that is that touches him. She's a sinner. How do you know that? Oh well. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Master, say on. So Christ said, there was a certain creditor that had two debtors, one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Now tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? And Simon said, I suppose he to whom he forgave the most. And he said, you have rightly judged. He turns to the woman and he said unto Simon, you see this woman? I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet. And that was a deliberate snub by haughty, supercilious, pharisaical Simon, who was self-righteous, a snub. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss. That was just like Frenchmen today, a quick bus on the cheek. Since the woman came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
my head with oil you did not anoint. And that was again cleaning up in the foyer a little bit of oil for your head and your hair and you combed it back. This woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto her, her sins which are forgiven, are, her, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. What a truth that is. I have seen all my life those who are self-righteous, those who feel, well, I've never done that. I've never done the other thing. Well, I'm not like him. Well, I didn't commit that kind of a sin. They've got a tolerance about that deep toward the foibles, the flaws, and the mistakes of others. They are almost bereft of compassion. They might know the meaning of the word sympathy, but they have no concept whatsoever of the word empathy. Christ has empathy, a deep feeling almost as if you're in the same circumstance and it is affecting you so deeply that you know exactly the agony that someone else is going through. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture because it is talking about the pharisaical self-righteousness of those who have apparently had very little for which they feel they should have been forgiven, and therefore they don't forgive very much. They tend to be intolerant. And so Jesus turned to the woman and said, Your sins are forgiven you. And they that sat at meat began to say within themselves, Who is this who forgives sins also? And He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Faith? Well, yes. She knew if she could just get there, she wanted to talk to Him. Interesting that Christ didn't find it necessary. Interesting that Christ could easily read her mind and heart by her bodily actions. The tears, the red face, the runny nose, didn't even care how she looked, utterly de devastated, utterly distraught. Down there, you know, the most humble thing you can do is to wash or lave someone's feet. She did more than that. She was kissing his feet, thinking, oh, if I could just touch the Savior. And so, he said, your sins are forgiven. He didn't make her sit there and say, now what about this, what about that, and go through them all, did he? Well, then no human being has the right to do that to you or anyone else either. I've said it's the most personal decision you will ever make. It is the most important you will ever make. Go ahead then and make it. Look at God's law, and let me just conclude here quickly by wrapping this up and saying that if you are someone who is trying to be baptized in order to satisfy a family or a group or to join something or to belong to something or to join the church. Really look deeply into that motive and get on your knees and discuss it with God and realize that that is not the right motive. What you need are the motives of Job when he said, I abhor myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. What you need are the motives of David when he prayed Psalm 51. What you need are the motives of the Apostle Paul who said, I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. And he said, I who am the least of the apostles, and so on. He never could forget what he had done. Even though God had long since forgiven him, the Apostle Paul had a problem forgiving himself. If your need is so great that you want to be forgiven of sin, sins against God, then by all means you should proceed and be baptized. And one thing you need to remember, once you have put your hand to the plow and you have counted the cost, you can never take your hand away from that plow again. In Luke 14, 25, to the end of that passage, Jesus Christ said, what 
captain of a, an army or a, a general of an army would it be who would go out to war without first finding out what, it, what kind of a force he was facing? What about a man who assays to build a house and builds a foundation and doesn't have enough money to finish it? He says, count the cost, and he goes on to say, he that loveth his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loves less by comparison, I know the Bible uses the word hateth there, but it actually is love less by comparison. His father, mother, brother, sister, relatives, friends, is not worthy of me. We must love Jesus Christ of Nazareth more than any other human being and more than our own lives. And when we do and we come to God with broken heart in contrition and humility and beg God for forgiveness, He says to us, yes, I will forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And you start over with a brand new slate. You start over as clean as a field of white driven snow. You start over with not one single black mark against your record. And from there on, you'll stumble, you'll slip, you'll make mistakes. Sure you will. Read 1 John, the first chapter. If we say we have no sin, wrote John to Christians, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's why Jesus Christ is there as our daily high priest, not for all the sins we have committed prior to the baptismal pool, but for those mistakes and failings and sins and flaws and faults that are bound to come along afterwards. And Christ is there as our daily high priest. So if you've come to this point where you understand what is repentance, what it is you're repenting of, of the breaking of God's law, and you want to be baptized and to become a child of God and to receive God's Holy Spirit, by all means, request baptism. We'll conclude that statement about the repentance phase of this three-step process toward salvation, and we will continue very shortly with the subject of baptism.